Now this I say and testify in the Lord. So this is a command calling not just from Paul himself, but from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. There the Gentiles are those who are not in Christ. They're pagans, they're unbelievers. And what's interesting here is he's writing to ethnic Gentiles, but Paul recognizes that our identity is not in our ethnicity. I think that needs to be heard today. Um, Our identity is bound up in the fact that we're image bearers, and for those of us who are in Christ, that we are in Christ. So he says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Now, he's not describing a real uh, notorious, wicked person. He's describing all unbelievers. He's describing everyone here before our conversion to Christ. They have become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt... Notice the battles fought at the level desires, corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Father, we come to a very important text. Every text we've examined has been important, but this is uniquely important with regard to the holiness and the Christian character of your people. And we pray that the prophetic nature of this text would bear that weight even through the weakness of the preacher. And we pray that you would grant us ears to hear May your spirit edit my plans and purposes to fit your will for this text this morning. That the people of God at Fisherville might be through the means of this text, the grace of this text, be more conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. On September the 30th, 1945, the U.S. Indianapolis was heading home across the Pacific, uh, having delivered a cargo of enriched uranium that would be instrumental in putting an end to World War II. Well, a Japanese torpedo ended that journey home. 
In the first 12 minutes after the attack, 300 died. More than 900 of these men, some, uh, some of them very terribly wounded, ended up in the ocean, the salt water, without fresh water and without any kind of protection from the sharks. Only 316 of these survived four days and five nights in the ocean. Chief Medical Officer Captain Lewis Haynes was one of the survivors, and, and he, he lived to tell about it. And, and here's what he said about that tragedy. When the hot sun came out, and we were in the crystal clear water, you were so thirsty, you couldn't believe it wasn't good enough to drink. I had a hard time convincing the men that they shouldn't drink. The real young ones, you, you take away their hope when you take away their food and water. They would drink the salt water and would go fast. I can remember striking men who were drinking salt water to try to stop them. They would get dehydrated and then become very maniacal. There was also mass hallucinations. It was amazing how everyone was seeing the same thing. Well, this is, I think, a, a good analogy. This historical tragedy, I believe it's a good analogy for Paul's intentions in our text today. We, as believers, currently reside in the shark-infested salt water of a world opposed. And on top of that, we ourselves are not yet fully glorified. We've been redeemed by the blood from the penalty of the sin, from sin, but we have not been fully redeemed from the presence of sin. So all of us, as Christians, long for the living water. Okay, But in our current condition, we're often drawn to salt water, to God replacements that not only cannot satisfy us, they exasperate our thirst and actually makes us increasingly desire what is actually poison which numbs our senses, even for the Christian, our senses to what is righteous, our senses to what is holy and good. And when our minds and, and when our affections, our hearts are darkened by this effect, we begin to see with the world hallucinations. We begin to hallucinate. It's very possible for a Christian to have these hallucinations and begin to see hope in hopeless things, things that cause destruction. And that's Paul's concern. And it's his concern because, yes, he's concerned about your individual walk, but he is concerned about God's purposes for the church in the world. 
as God sums up all things in Jesus Christ and fills the world with his reign and his rule. That's why he's concerned with our walks, our conduct, our Christian character. Our walks play a role in our witness, but our walks also play a role in our growth. And that brings us to the first part of this passage. It matters how we walk. Look with me in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk. Now, if you'll remember back in chapter four, verse one, he said, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And so he's got the walk in his mind here, that the Christian life, your Christian character informing your Christian life. That's the walk. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, that is the unbelievers. Again, these people are largely Gentiles, but their identity is not bound up in their skin color or their ethnicity. It's bound up in the fact that they are image bearers, more importantly, restored image bearers in Jesus Christ. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, before we get into the details of this text, I think it's important for us to take a, a theological excursus for just a moment so that we can understand why Paul would give this kind of warning to Christians. It almost seems this warning um, would not be something relevant for Christians. Paul would say, oh, but it is. The obvious question is why Christians, those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, need this kind of admonition, this kind of warning. Well, like natural organisms, and we know this better than ever uh, in this pandemic season, a believer's spiritual life can be afflicted with illnesses that disrupt it. Now, for the true Christian, the one who's truly been converted to Christ, your spiritual life cannot perish. It cannot die. Yet, it can be suppressed. It can be hindered. And it can be thwarted in its growth. That's the believer's spiritual life. Now, these illnesses are, are manifestations of the old self. Now, keep in mind, we as Christians don't have two natures. Jesus has two natures. We have one nature. We, are, we are, uh, have a redeemed nature, and yet that old nature that's been crucified rears its ugly head. There's the remnants of that old nature that continues to rear its ugly head. And I believe in the providence of God. He allows that to teach us to deny ourselves and to, to strengthen our faith in his manna, to strengthen our faith in his provision. But this is going to remain with us until glory, the remnants of the old self. Now, to be sure, and we could look at the writings outside of Paul, but in Paul's epistle alone, as an advance on our future glory, you could say a down payment on our future glory. And what is our future glory? Our resurrected, redeemed selves in the new heavens and the new earth. But as an advance 
a deposit on our future glory, believers receive the spirit of adoption and sonship. That's Galatians 4, 6. And this is our driving force to be led by the Spirit. Romans 8, verse 14. The believer as a pattern sets his and her mind on the things of the Spirit. Romans 8, verses 4 and 5. Uh, We have died with Christ. Galatians 2, verse 20. And the old self has been put to death Romans 6, verse 6, and we have been set from, free from sin. Romans 6, verse 2, and we've been raised with Christ. Romans 6, verse 4, and we now belong to God. Romans 6, verse 11, we've been made alive to God and Jesus lives in us. Galatians 2, verse 20. Nevertheless, nevertheless, with all of those truths in tow, The remnants of the old self continue to exist. We're not as a pattern dominated by them, but they remain. And hence the battle within. Now, conflict occurs in an unbeliever as well. I remember the conflict before I was converted And you likely remember the conflict as well. But for the unbeliever, the struggle is not against sin as such. Or because it dishonors God. Or because it displeases God or eclipses His glory. And so it's not an always, everywhere, against all sin kind of conflict. But only against some sins. Those sins that might bring punishment. So it's sins that we fear out of the fear of punishment, public shame, public opinion, but not because we love God. That's the conflict within the unbeliever. But the spiritual struggle in the believer is completely different, diametrically different than the conflict within an unbeliever. In the believer, this war is waged until the end. Now, the outcome of the struggle is not in doubt. Notwithstanding the ups and downs of the Christian life, we realize that there are ups and downs, vacillations in our spiritual lives. The Holy Spirit in us triumphs in the course of our life. That's the mark of a Christian. Over the course of our lives and as a pattern, the Spirit of God will triumph in the believer. Because as a pattern, as Paul writes in Romans 8, the the believer walks according to the Spirit. Paul says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul says that promise of no condemnation is for those who, as a pattern, walk according to the Spirit. It's not a work salvation. Walking according to the Spirit is the fruit of our salvation, but it's the mark of a Christian. And at the end of life, every believer will ultimately triumph completely. 
Our faith will overcome the world. 1 John 5, verse 5. Having said all that, that doesn't take away the fact that the flesh is temporally, at certain moments in our life, more powerful. And that is my excursus to make sense of verse 17. Paul is writing to Christians, and he says, you must no longer walk. He is saying, there will be times in your life you have a propensity to do just that. And it is fundamentally destructive. Now, look at this word now. That word, you may have a translation that reads, therefore. I think therefore is actually a better translation. It's the Greek word, un. You would spell this in English, O-U-V, un. Um, and, and so therefore, I think is a better translation because he's building on what he just said. In other words, therefore, this I say and testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, in the most immediate context, and for lack of time, we can't expand on this. Verse 16, what did he say? He says, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint, that's every member, every believer, with which it is equipped, we're equipped with, with, with uh, spiritual gifts, when each part is working properly. Paul says the church is built up when every believer is interconnected with each other using their gifts, and the gifts are working properly. And then he says, therefore. Paul sees a potential issue in body life. Now, you could apply this outside the church for sure, but let's keep this contextual. He is concerned here primarily with body life because he sees the purposes of God for the church. God's Christ-centered, Christocentric purposes for the world are going to be achieved fundamentally through the church. And so he sees a potential issue here. What he sees here is we can do our work. In other words, the work he talks about in verse 16, with our spiritual gifts, we can be using our spiritual gifts, using these gifts in the work of ministry in the local church, but if our character does not match our ministry. Paul says it would be better that you did not do ministry at all. Someone said this week, and I heard him say this, I was actually in, 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 in one of the classes I taught, and I thought this was profound from one of my students, that of the thousands of sermons that Ravi Zacharias preached, in his ministry, it's his double life that's the loudest and most effective sermon of all. It's his double life. It's the sermon that continues and will continue to be preached because his character did not match his ministry. Indeed, it's telling here that Paul follows up this discussion on the role of spiritual gifts in the building up of the body with a lot bigger section on godliness. We thought verses 1 to 16 was quite large. 
It pales in comparison to the section we're about to get into that's going to take us all the way through chapter 6. In other words, the greatest gift we can offer Christ's church isn't our spiritual gifts, but our godliness, our holiness, our righteousness, our love, and the way we relate to one another. And so God is responsible for our spiritual gifts. We've already established that, right? These are gifts purchased for us in the Son of God. But He gives us responsibility to be righteous and holy with these gifts. And what's striking about this description is is its emphasis on the mind. Notice verse 17 again. You must no longer walk, as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. Paul is saying there is a real capacity to revert back to your path of least resistance, the patterns that developed before you were converted. And he says it happens in the mind. In fact, I want you to note, mind is found in verse 17 and verse 23. Understanding is found in verse 18. And our thinking, our ignorance is found in verse 18. And learning Christ is found in verse 20. The impression is sometimes given, and I hear it often, that it doesn't matter what a person actually thinks. It's how that person lives. Well, well, Paul would say no to that nonsense. Paul recognizes that people act as they think. Problems can always be traced back to the mind. And our thinking, even for a Christian, when it's divorced from the Word of God, now there are decisions and things we have to do that are gray areas. Not everything is black and white. But when our thinking is divorced from the Word of God, either by what the Word says explicitly or by implication, Paul calls that futile thinking. And that characterizes the unbeliever. But it can also trip up a Christian. Indeed, notice the Gentiles in verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. When we're thinking with futility, divorced from God's word, it's the same thing for us. They are darkened in their understanding. Notice why they're darkened, because of alienation. Alienation from the life of God. It's like when one side of the earth faces away from the sun. We're alienated from God in our thinking and and it causes a spiritual darkening. You can't live the Christian life with a closed Bible. You just can't. It's impossible. And, and, And he's treating this, scholars believe, he's using the imagery of being able to see. The understanding here is treated as if it were a blind eye. But, but this, this spiritual darkness is worse. This spiritual blindness is much more dangerous than physical blindness because the one who's physically blind knows it. But the one who is spiritually blind is blind to his blindness. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 9, verse 40 and 41, 
Some of the Pharisees said to Jesus, are are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. In other words, if they recognized their spiritual blindness, they would flee to the one who gives sight. But you say, we're not blind. But now that you say we see, your guilt guilt remains. The Pharisees could physically see, but they couldn't spiritually see. They were darkened in their understanding. You know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled uh, to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds, the eyes, spiritual eyes of the unbeliever so they cannot see the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In fact, that's how you explain the insanity of false religions. And and, and the false religions abound. That's how you explain the insanity of of anti-gospel philosophies. Like critical race theory that seeks to replace the gospel as an anecdote for reconciliation. It's how you explain liberation theology that teaches my biggest problem is not the person in the mirror. My biggest problem are the structures in the people outside of me. It's spiritual darkening. Paul says that is the tendency even of Christians if we're not careful. This darkness, he says, is a result of being alienated from the life of God. You see, we were created all the way back to be inhabited by God. He intended for the human spirit, small s spirit, to be inhabited by the Holy Spirit. That was his intention. And the Holy Spirit was to enlighten our minds and energize our wills. In other words, the life of man was to express the life of God. Let me say that again. From the very time of creation, the life of man was to express the life of God. And sin and the fall ruined that. And without the life of the Holy Spirit, we're spiritually dead. We're alienated. And and it's blindness that comes is due to willful ignorance. He says this, he makes it clear, willful ignorance due to the willful hardening of the heart. And though that can be a propensity to fall back into those patterns for the believer, it is not how we are to be characterized. This week was the 40th anniversary of the death of Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great 20th century preacher and perhaps the biggest influence uh, on me uh, with regard to the pulpit. Now, I don't preach uh, exactly like him. He, he would preach entire sermons, like I talked about the Greek word un, uh, the word therefore. Uh, when he preached Ephesians, he preached an entire sermon on that word. Uh, and, and so I, I, I think that sometimes that you can fall into just preaching systematic theology if you, just, if you hover over the text too long like a helicopter. You lose the forest for the trees. But, but what I learned from Lloyd-Jones was his trust and in the sufficiency of Scripture in the pulpit. 
Well, this past week was the 40th anniversary of his death, and in the last hours of his death, he couldn't speak, but he scribbled out his last words. And here's what his last words were. Don't pray for healing. Don't hold me back from the glory. Don't you love that? Don't pray for healing. Don't hold me back from the glory. You see, Lloyd-Jones, even in his death, was enlightened to the glory. That's the mark of the Christian. Conversely, Lloyd-Jones once told the story uh, in one of his sermons of the prime minister of England, William Pitt. William Pitt was a a genius. Uh, He was brilliant. And he was also friends with the remarkable abolitionist, the Christian abolitionist, William Wilberforce. Of course, Wilberforce was concerned about Pitt's salvation. Though Pitt was a brilliant man and a remarkable prime minister, he was not converted to Christ. And so William would, would, would plead with his friend Pitt to come hear his preacher, Richard Cecil. And, and so one day, uh, Pitt conceded, and he went with Wilberforce to hear his preacher, Richard Cecil, and Richard Cecil was in rare form that day, and Wilberforce was deeply edified by the sermon, and he just knew that his friend Pitt next to him was being stirred as well. But as they're walking out of the church, Pitt looks at Wilberforce and says, I have not the slightest idea what that man was talking about. Spiritual darkening. And that is the mark of the unbeliever. And when the Christian falls back to walking like the unbeliever, that's the danger. Notice in verse 19, he says, They have become callous. I mean, this is fearful language. Paul is warning every Christian in Fisherville this can happen. This can happen. This wouldn't be a warning to you. If it wasn't something that could happen, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul is saying, and we need to believe this, in a time when the percentages of evangelicals who watch pornography, among many other sins, are off the chains. Sin is not to be trifled with. It's enslaving. It's degenerative. What do I mean by that? It gets worse. You don't stay where you are. It's degenerative. It's also damaging. It's damaging personally, and it's damaging collaterally. Everyone around you will be impacted by your sin, and it damages the witness of the church and the effectiveness of the church. Notice, have become callous. It's the only place in the New Testament this is found, but it literally means past feeling. You lose all sense of feeling. It's like sin is like ice. It can shock you at the beginning, but then it deadens you. It deadens you. A person with no sense of pain might burn his hand and not even know it. And as a result, keep his hand in the fire. As a result, he says, they've become callous. Of course, he's talking about their souls, their spirits, their minds, their affections. They've given themselves up 
Because they're callous and they can't feel the pain of sin. Sin is not to be trifled with. They have given themselves up to sensuality. Now, it's easy to relegate that to sexual sins, and it's certainly that, but it's broader than that. Sensuality means lack of self-constraint. Lack of self-constraint. And so the callousness leads to a lack of self-constraint because you can't feel anything. And without constraint, Paul says, look what happens to the believer. He becomes greedy. And what does he become greedy for? To practice every kind of impurity. Why does he become greedy? Because he cannot satisfy. Salt water cannot satisfy you. That's what Paul is saying. Here Paul writes that, that people gave themselves up. And he says, Christian, quit walking like the Gentiles. Look at its end. Paul says, do you see where unrepentant sin can take you? It matters how you walk. And he's certainly concerned about your individual walk, but he's concerned about God's purposes for the church in the world. What did I say last week? And I believe this. Our biggest problem is not the progressive left. That's a problem. But our biggest problem is that there's a void of that which is good. There's a void of the gospel witness in this country, and it's been replaced with a counterfeit. That's the problem. And one of the reasons for that is that we have too many Christians who walk like the Gentiles. It matters how you walk. Paul also says, and we come to the second part of this passage, it matters what you wear. It matters what you wear. Notice in verse 20 to 24, he says in verse 20, but that, 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 all that I'm talking to you about, sin's erosion, sin's effect, that is not the way you learned Christ. I love that language. Assuming that you have heard about him. What do you think he's saying there? There are some professing Christians that aren't truly converted. And I would submit that in most churches, they are present. They've made profession, they've made confession. But what does Jesus say? There will be many who say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. But Paul is saying, I'm assuming, I'm assuming here that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth that is in Jesus. Paul is saying, every Fisherville believer, you need to understand that the Christian life is integrally and inseparably related to Jesus Christ. And so he's going to use three verbs, all in reference to the truth that is in Jesus. The first one we see here, you learned Christ. Now there's a way to learn about Christ that doesn't change you. You can read about the historical Christ and it not have any saving effect. You may even be able to dot all your I's and cross all your T's about the person of Christ and, and, and what he accomplished. But that's not what he's talking about here. Uh, th this is akin to what Jesus prayed in John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, 
in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This is intimate saving knowledge, learning of Christ. To learn of Christ is to learn and to trust and to love his person. Not as a means towards your end, but as the end itself. To to trust in his work. And what is his works? In short, as our substitute. To live where we could not live. Obediently to the Father. Fulfilling all righteousness. To die as our substitute. Taking the full wrath of God that we deserve for our sin. And to trust in his victory. And his exaltation. To trust in his shepherding ministry. You know what that means? That means I'm not just trusting him for the forgiveness of my sins. I'm trusting him to lead me where he's taking me. And where he's taking me is the place where I will thrive. It's to trust him as the shepherd. And and to trust him that his resources are sufficient for new life. For obedience, for overcoming our temptations, for overcoming our sins. That's what it means to learn Christ. The second verb he uses here is you heard about him. The ESV translation is unfortunate. And and I know it sounds arrogant for me, uh, who is not a Greek scholar. I studied Greek, but I am not a Greek scholar to say against a whole host of Greek scholars who translated this that it's a bad translation. But it is. And many commentaries, many scholars would say that. Why do I say that? Well, first of all, Jesus here is the substance of our teaching. You learn Christ. But he's also the teacher, and you miss that in that phrase. Because the ESV, unfortunately, translates that phrase, you heard about him. But here's the problem with that translation. The preposition about's not there. I don't know why they put it in there. I'm sure they had good reason because the ESV translation committee were committed to the scriptures. But literally, this is you learned Christ. In other words, through the voice, the human voice of your teachers, through evangelist, through the human voice of your preachers, your pastors, you heard the voice of Christ. You heard the voice of Christ as the word of God centered on Christ was rightly taught. Notice the third verb here. You were taught in him, in him. What does Paul mean here? Jesus, and I think the best way to say this, is the atmosphere within which the teaching takes place. We're in Christ. We've been crucified with him. Romans 6, verse 6. We've been buried with him. Romans 6, 4. We've been raised with him and live with him. Romans 6, 8. We're seated with him in the heavenlies. Ephesians 2. Jesus is our life. Philippians 1, 21. And we abide in him. John 15, verse 4. And we put on Christ. Galatians 3, 27. And he dwells in us. Ephesians 3. 17, and we are one flesh with him, Ephesians 5. And now because of these realities, we cannot let the remnants of the old self. Now you think about a fire. The old nature was like that untamable fire 
that got quenched by the gospel, by the person and the work of Jesus applied by the Holy Spirit. But there's still, right, the remnants of that fire that can cause a lot of damage. It's been tamed, it's under control, but it can cause great damage. That's what the remnants of the old self can do for the Christian. And Paul says, in light of these realities, you can't let the remnants of your old self have any voice. They have no say. They have no influence. And he uses three verbs to convey this message as we come to the end of this passage. Verse 22. Notice he says, to put off your old self. As I said earlier, it matters what you wear. Rather, it matters who you wear. To put off your old self. So this verb was used for the taking off of clothing. And Paul is using that there as, as imagery. Uh, he, he wants you to conceptualize this. Sometimes uh, it, it's easy for doctrine and theology to remain in the clouds, to stay abstract. And so the, the writers of Scripture will use metaphors so that you can conceptualize what they're talking about. And so like you put off your clothing, he says, put off the old self. A biblical illustration, I think, that is helpful here is, is Lazarus. Lazarus was raised from the dead when he heard the voice of, of Christ. And, and what did Jesus say? His next words are illuminating. Unbind him. Unbind him. What was he saying there? He says, take off his grave clothes. He is no longer dead. Lazarus no longer belongs to the domain of death. That's Paul's argument. You take off your grave clothes and you continue to take them off every day because they will rear their head. You no longer belong to the domain of death. You no longer belong to the domain of sin. You belong to the new creation. You have been transferred into the realm of the new creation. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Now, the Puritans used a fancy term, and I, I think it's good for you to, to uh, know this term, and many of you do, mortification. The mortification of the flesh. And, and that was the term they used. Now, that sounds horrifying. Mortification of the flesh. It's literally putting to death your, the deeds done in the body, Colossians 3, verse 5, it sounds horrifying, but think about this. Your flesh profits nothing. Jesus said that, John 6. Your flesh profits nothing. Its desires are against the Spirit's desires, Galatians 5, 17. Your flesh is that part of your redeemed, unredeemed humanity that is still in rebellion to God and His purposes. In other words, your flesh seeks your death. And so when we hear mortification of the flesh, that's actually a glorious summons. Before our conversion, before we were um, in Christ, our sinful nature ruled Alone and unopposed. Now, God had common grace restraints in place. Praise God for that. If he didn't, we would all be Adolf Hitlers. 
In our unregenerate state, we are more like Hitler than we are Jesus. But there are common grace restraints. Our, our, our civil authorities, our, our police, our military, there are restraints on evil. Your parents is a restraint. Uh, social conventions, what is acceptable in a culture. Well, social, we used to have social conventions. These were restraints on your evil. Okay, so you did, no one, none of us in here expressed the fullness of our sinfulness because of these common grace restraints. But having said that, our sinful nature ruled unalone, or alone rather, and unopposed. But at our conversion, the moment we were converted to Christ, the Holy Spirit entered. The third person of the Trinity the one who was sent to glorify Jesus in you. And let me just tell you, he's really good at what he does. He's stronger than you. He's more powerful than you. He entered and began a renewal that is now our new nature. And hence the battle. And I think the second uh, verb here Paul uses, is, I think, confirms that that we have a role in that battle. Notice in verse 23, he says, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Again, it takes place at the level of the mind. In Titus 3, 5, Paul says it's the Holy Spirit who does the work of renewal. He saved us not because of any righteous things he, we had done. He saved us because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Yet even if the Holy Spirit is responsible for our transformation, now keep in mind there is an inseparable operation in the Godhead, and so what the Spirit is doing, the Father and Son are at work too. But uniquely, the Spirit is given the role of transformation. We know that from 2 Corinthians 3, and we all with unveiled face beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed from one degree of glory to another, and that is from the Lord, the Holy Spirit. So it is the Spirit who does this work of transformation or renewal, to use Paul's language here, and yet we are responsible. This is not let go and let God. Yes, our salvation, our sanctification is all of grace. None of us can go to the mirror and sing how great thou art. It's all of grace. Yet we are responsible. On the cover of your bulletin, uh, we see our responsibility in this. Paul says, and do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your minds. And here he says, renewed in the spirit of your mind. It starts with the mind. And so you open your Bible and you let the word of God correct your faulty, sinful, wicked, sub-Christian thinking. You, you latch on to the promises of God and let those promises overcome and take dominion over your anxieties, your fears, and your lack of faith. That's what it means to renew your mind. And we see this even more clearly, I think, in verse 24 with the third and final verb as we close here. 
to put on the new self. Again, this is clothing imagery. You put off the old clothes of the old person and you put on the new self created after likeness of God. I love that. In true righteousness and holiness. Paul says our new walks must be consistent with the new persons that we are. And Paul is saying by metaphor that it's completely inadequate just to flee from sin. It's completely inadequate just to flee. We must also pursue that which is righteous and holy. Now, what is righteousness? Let me define that. It is fidelity, faithfulness, commitment to God's law, God's commands, all of which reveal and reflect the character of God himself. That's what righteousness is. It's commitment and faithfulness, an unswerving commitment to the law and the commands of God, all of which are a revelation of the character of God himself. What is holiness? It means to be set apart. We're set apart from that which is defiled, that which is profane, that which is sinful, salt water. And we are set apart for God. We give him our lives and and we give him our talents, our, our time, our resources. We are set apart from him. That's what it means to be an image bearer. We were created for this. More importantly, we recreated for this. And like a bird that was created to fly and flourishes only when it's flying, like a fish that was created to to swim and only flourishes when it swims, we were created for righteousness and holiness. And Paul is warning us of the ruin of any other way. This is what the Puritans call vivification. Mortification is putting to death your flesh. Vivification is nourishing the patterns that God promises will bring human flourishing and fulfillment and abundant life. That means availing ourselves to God's means of grace. All the activities within the fellowship of the church that God uses to give more grace to believers. And so one way we can put on the new self is the table. Isn't that remarkable? That in eternity past, God ordained, we would celebrate the table on a day when we've been called to put on the new self. And so as we come to the table... We, we recognize every week that there are uh, visitors with us. We don't see you as visitors. We see you as family if you are in Christ. And, and we, we invite you to, to the table to celebrate the table with us upon a couple of conditions. The first being that you have trusted in Jesus um, for the forgiveness of sins. You, you trust that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He was raised so that you might have your sins forgiven, that you might be declared righteous in God's sight. Also, you're a member in good standing of a sister church. What is a sister church? For us, it's a church that believes that gospel. And so if you are a visitor, please, with those conditions, um, we ask that you partake with us here at the table. But before we do, let's bow our heads and ask the Lord to prepare our hearts to receive 
uh, these elements rightly. Let's, let's pray. Father, we, we just thank you that we have this means of grace, a means by which we put on uh, the, the new self. But it's also a means by which we put off the old self, which is a daily, moment-by-moment responsibility. And so, Lord, as a way of putting off our old selves, we want to just have a moment where we confess our sin. Father, we, your word tells us if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, you are faithful. You are just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of the work of your Son. So now in these moments, we, we silently confess our sins and we, in so doing, we're putting off the old self. It's not just we're confessing, Lord, we're repenting right now of any sins that we've committed, sins of malice or sins of weakness, intentional high-handed sins or perhaps even hidden sins that we weren't aware of. We confess that we've not loved you with our whole heart this week. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves this week. And we confess that. We repent. For the sake of your your son Jesus Christ, our mediator, our advocate to you, have mercy on us. Forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name. Amen. And now, let us pray as we partake of the bread. Lord God, the bread that we are about to partake is symbolic of the human body in which Jesus dwelt in the flesh, incarnate among us, sinless, righteous, and holy for 30 years. And when he was crucified, he, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. And not a single one of us recognized the full extent of our sins. And he bore all of them. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness and holiness. Seal this to our hearts as we eat this bread. Representative of his body broken for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can call you Father. We don't deserve that. But because of your adopting grace, because of the elder brother's work of redemption, we can approach you and call you Father. And we thank you this day for the new covenant.
the covenant sealed through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we drink this cup in remembrance of his all-sufficient atoning sacrifice for our sins, asking even now that in your Son, Jesus Christ, and through your Spirit, that you would commune with us as we commune with each other. And with thankful hearts, we drink this unto Christ. Amen. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Amen. Let me just close today with a prayer. And my prayer is that every Christian here would commit, when you leave here, to no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of our thinking. But that would we would put off the old selves, put on the new selves, and recognize Jesus has redeemed you and he's resourced you. He's resourced you with gifts so that the body of Christ may be built up and so that the world can be impacted by the gospel that we hold dear. He's also resourced you with himself. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, yet it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this passage. I pray that it would impact, inform every Christian here for the glory of your name as your spirit forms Christ in us, as your spirit glorifies Christ in us so that the church may be built up, so that the church may engage our culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray that every Christian here would have an opportunity this week to not only model the gospel of Jesus Christ, but to proclaim it. We pray for open doors. We pray that we would be sensitive to those open doors and that we would be bold and gracious to walk through those open doors and give sinners the gospel of Christ, the only hope. Every other hope is salt water. And I pray, Lord, if there's any here today that have never trusted in Jesus, that they would see fit to come see me after the service and ask me about what it means to be a Christian. What does it mean to be saved? Who is Jesus? What did he do that I might have my sins forgiven? And we ask these things for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. May you go in the grace of God, the love of our Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit.